Hello, welcome to the Rio of Prime Review. My name is Gaurav Sharma and I'm one of the reporters on the America's core credit team. Today, we're going to talk about distress debt in the healthcare sector in the US. And I'm joined by Sam Measle, who leads the firm's healthcare industry restructuring efforts nationwide as a partner in Denton's LA office. His practice includes bankruptcy matters as well as financial restructurings involving a broad spectrum of industries, but he's a nationally recognized expert in the unique issues that arise in the restructuring of healthcare industry entities. Thanks for joining us, Sam. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to join. Yeah, thank you. So to kick things off, I would like, uh, you know, my question, my first question is, what do you think the numbers of distressed healthcare companies has increased significantly over the years? Well, it's certainly, look, the healthcare industry, which, you know, it's, it's 20% basically of GDP in America is spent on healthcare, which, you know, is twice what most Western nations spend um, for a lot of some good, some bad reasons. Um, but it's it has sort of been limping along with various sectors in financial distress for for decades, really. Um, and and coming out of the pandemic, it is, I think, by virtually all measurements uh, in its worst financial shape in certainly the 30 years that I've been working in the healthcare space. Um, the, 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 the financial issues, there's some systematic problems that have existed for decades, but the pa COVID pandemic certainly exacerbated those problems. Uh, the net result is going to be a sharp increase in healthcare bankruptcies. There already was a sharp increase in healthcare bankruptcies in 2022, uh, primarily led by filings in the senior care and pharmaceutical sectors. But we're seeing a lot of activity in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, senior living, uh, hospitals. Uh, you know, all those sectors are in the first part of the first quarter of 2023. We're seeing a lot of activity. So the issues, why is this the case? Um, Look, the healthcare industry should be healthy because the baby boomer generation is now moving into that period of their lives where they need increased healthcare. Uh, period, right? They need more healthcare. Um, but in fact, that's not how this is working out. Part of it is structural. We just provide healthcare differently. So, for example, you know, take hip replacements, which are high compensation, low risk procedures that orthopedic surgeons do in hospitals. Um, and they can do six in the morning and be on the golf course by dinner, uh, by lunch. But, um, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, those were, you were in the hospital for days and then you went to a rehabilitation center for weeks. And now they are literally outpatient surgeries. So and we just need less hospital beds than we would expect for a population this size if we'd been looking at this size population with this age group demographic in 1950. Um, and that's because of the advances in medicine. But also coming out of the pandemic, there are some, some new issues that, you know, it sort of existed, but really have been uh, ramped up during the pandemic. And one is the, the probably the most dramatic increase is increased labor costs in the industry. So there's a terrible shortage of nurses in America. It's been ongoing. It was sort of covered up by bringing nurses from overseas. Um, but that's dried up 
uh, for partially because of our immigration policies, partially because of the pandemic. Um, so you have a tremendous nursing shortage uh, and exacerbated by burnout of existing nurses who are now either retiring or doing something else. The net result is tremendous labor increase in costs. Labor shortages have led to labor increased costs for nurses in particular. Those nurses, because a hospital has to have certain level of staffing, they're not like a shoe store where you can just say, we'll have less people on the sh showroom floor. Uh, they, they hire what are called traveling or visiting nurses. These traveling or visiting nurses can be three to five times more expensive on an hourly basis than your staff nurses. And so, you know, labor costs have gone up because there people are replacing staff nurses with visiting nurses. And then it becomes sort of a vicious cycle because the staff nurse who wasn't willing to go through the inconvenience of traveling at two times their pay salary, um, you know, when it, when the nurse working next to them is making four times, they say to themselves, well, maybe I'm being foolish and I should become a visiting nurse. And then they leave to become a visiting nurse at some other hospital, sometimes as close as an hour away or less. And they make four times as much, but now they've left another hole at the first hospital that has to be replaced by another much more expensive traveling nurse. So increased labor costs for nurses are really, if I had to point to one issue, that would be it. But you know that there's also a labor shortage. I mean, unemployment in America is down in the mid to low 3%. And so skilled nursing facilities, hospitals have a lot of unskilled labor, particularly skilled nursing facilities. And those people are paid minimum wage. And the skilled nursing facilities are competing with Walmart, Target, uh, for those late for that labor. And so even unskilled labor costs have gone up dramatically. The net result is tremendous labor pressure. Um, and the last factor with regard to labor pressure is uh, as collective bargaining agreements for nurses come up for renegotiation, the collect the nurses unions now have the ability to point to, you know, the cost of labor for traveling nurses and get big, bigger increases for the staff nurses than they would have otherwise, because even though they're getting bigger than normal increases for staff nurses, it's still less expensive than the traveling nurses. So it's all a problem. Supply costs are also going up. It just, if you just look at the rate of inflation, six or 7%, that's all uh, passed on, obviously, for goods and services that the hospitals pay for. Um, and they don't have the ability to pass those costs on to the buyers because the buyers are federal agencies, state agencies, Medicare, Medicaid primarily, um, and also health plans, think Blue Cross Blue Shield, that have long-term contracts or the government agencies that set the rates themselves. And so what you see is the inability to pass on these, these increased costs in the short term. So they may get increased contract rates later, but in the meantime, they're subsidizing these contracts. Um, a lot of the companies, a lot of the healthcare entities relied on COVID-related funding. That funding's now all uh, drying up. And so, you know, some of the issues got papered over because they had more money than, than they needed, uh, than they could generate through operations. Um, and obviously entities that have large portfolios in the market are not seeing the market gain. So think 
Ascension or Sutter or other companies that have large investment portfolios in the billions of dollars in the market. Well, those portfolios are not spinning off cash the way they were because uh, dividends are down and they're also losing value. So in addition to seeing some a lot of cash flow from operations decline, uh, they're also seeing investments decline. So that's a problem. So, um, you know, for all those reasons, we're just seeing a tremendous amount of financial pressure in the healthcare space. Very well explained, Sam. Can you explain what these companies can do to address these challenges? Well, I mean, some of it is literally just beyond their control. So some of it is you've seen lobbying at the state and federal level to get statutory caps on the nurses expenses, right? Where there's been, you know, public hearings on whether these traveling nurse associations are gouging the industry. Um, you know, so some of it is at the state and federal level lobbying, and that includes for increased compensation for Medicare and Medicaid services. The, I mean, you have to recognize Medicare and Medicaid never pay 100% um, of the actual cost of providing services. So hospitals lose money on every Medicare and Medicaid patient they service. And that's why you read these stories about how private payers, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, others pay so much more. That's because they are subsidizing Medicare and Medicaid losses. So that, and, and frequently, you know, this is sort of an interesting nuance in the industry. These contracts for Blue Cross Blue Shield and other health, health plans will be tied to Medicare. And they'll say, we'll pay 120% of Medicare um, to, because they know that, that literally they just got to pay more to make up the losses that hospitals suffer by treating government paid patients. Um, and so they can lobby the governments. In some cases, they've gotten extraordinary payments from the governments state, federal, local, to make up the losses because nobody wants the hospital in their community to close. Sometimes they've been able to go back to the health plans and renegotiate. Sometimes one of the things they are doing and you're seeing, which is, is unfortunate, but it is a reality, is that hospitals are closing services which are high risk, um, labor intensive, but not... Uh, well compensated, right? So, you know, one of the categories you'll see in that is maternity OBGYN. Um, and that's because um, natal care and, um, you know, delivery service, like just delivering babies is very high risk uh, and, and heavily has to be heavily insured because, I mean, this is kind of rough to describe, but if a hospital is commits malpractice or if a hospital has a malpractice lawsuit for an infant, a newborn, and they have and they lose and they have to compensate for care for the expected lifespan of a person, it's obviously very expensive. And so insurance is very expensive. Um, and and so those are the and and those things are not well compensated for you know whatever reason. And so those are there you see across the nation, uh, you know, hospitals dropping um, 
OBGYN, maternity, natal, uh, delivery. I mean, there was just an article in in uh, the New York Times and Becker's about the Washington state basically losing those kinds of procedures in hospitals across the state because of these issues uh, and the low rates of compensation so that they can't, they just, you know, what you're seeing to make up these losses is a cutback in services. But you're also seeing hospitals that are just closing. I mean, you know, Madera Hospital in the Central Valley in California, just, you know, they just closed because they just are not able to, uh, rural hospitals in particular, are not able to pay the salaries that are necessary to keep talent in this tight labor market and can't afford the costs and, and they can't survive on the low compensation and they can't do anything about it. So you're just seeing, you know, closure of obviously lines of services get closed, but then, you know, you just see closing of whole facilities. Great. Makes sense. Uh, what do you expect in terms of debt restructuring for these companies in 2023? So in terms of debt restructuring, I mean, what we're seeing is entities that are in, uh, you know, a vast number of entities in, in the healthcare space, hospitals, skilled nursing, assisted living, um, are in covenant defaults, right? So, so they are in a position where they are, um, you know, debt to, debt to uh, loan ratio, uh, sorry, debt to value ratios, debt to receivables ratios are, are in default. Uh, and, and now we're starting to see a lot more payment defaults as well as covenant defaults. So, you know, and, and lenders have been trying to work through the pandemic. Uh, probably more liberally than we would have seen otherwise with entities that are in distress. Um, but now what's happening is we come out of the pandemic, um, I guess I would say lenders' patience uh, with the borrowers is starting to run out. So what you're seeing is efforts to restructure the debts, you know, on both sides because they don't want non-performing debts and they can't replace the operators in some cases or any new operator is going to want to restructure the deal in such a way that it's really detrimental to the lender. Um, so, so you're seeing, uh, you know, uh, deals cut where they restructure the debt by uh, forgive some period of debt and tack it on to the end. Um, you know, lots of forbearance agreements where the forbearance agreements will demand um you know, certainly releases for the lender of any liability, but also um, restructuring the debt in a way that, uh, in, you know, maybe it increases the uh, rate of interest where it um, moves some payments to the end to give them a little payment free period. Um, sometimes they insist on uh, financial advisory groups be retained, independent board directors be retained. Um, you know, sometimes more draconian efforts like, uh, you know, demand that the assets be put up for sale in some period of time. So you're seeing all those elements in forbearance agreements, restructuring agreements um, to 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 allow entities to stay in business for some period of time. You know, it is um, there isn't there, you know, two, three years ago, I would have said there's a lot of money and every deal can be resold. Uh, not so much anymore, right? So we're seeing SPACs going away. We're seeing uh, 
uh, hedge funds, equity, I'm sorry, equity funds, value driven. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, do they want to get into hospitals where, you know, reimbursement is dictated by the payers, uh, not by the market? Can they get the return on investment they want? So we're seeing less money invested there in some of these spaces. Mm -hmm. um, all that's happening in real time. And, and, and you're seeing a lot of these restructurings that are taking place out of court because of the expense of bankruptcy. A lot of receiverships, particularly in skilled nursing assisted living space, um, all to restructure these debts. Thank you. What role can private credit have in this? Well, I mean, look, there, the demographics of healthcare are still really positive, right? We have an enormous demographic group, the baby boomers, moving into and through a time period where they will need a tremendous amount of health care. They're living longer. Um, you know, this the need for health care is is not going it's not going to diminish as this demographic group moves through their age cycle. So so that creates tremendous opportunity. Um and, and, and I do think, you know, you just have to be smart to the risks in this industry. So where we're seeing investment funds, telemedicine, electronic medical records, which is the future, um, durable medical equipment, home health, uh, you know, all those areas I think are ripe for private investment. Um, you know, to some lesser extent, ambulatory surgical centers, uh, which, are like small hospitals that take the low risk, high compensation procedures. Um, you know, some hospital chains uh, are still attractive, probably not inner city, probably not rural, because it's hard to get the return on investment you need. Um, you know, skilled nursing, assisted living, if, if they're run correctly, can still be a lucrative area for private investment. So those are the areas that I think we'd see some activity. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what is the opportunity set for investors here? Well, I mean, so the it's a little weird for investors now because there is some uh, disconnect on expectations, right? Buyers are looking at the cash flow from operations and, um, and they say, well, the cash flow from operations is terrible. So the price of the assets I acquire should be low, right? So it should be a buyer's market low values because of low cash flow from operations but a lot of facilities not although they're burning through the money quickly got a lot of covid related funds so for a while even though their cash flow from operations was terrible their liquidity was great and and so the you know there's a kind of a buyer seller disconnect now for investors because sellers who are still sitting on liquidity. And a year ago, some of them were sitting on more liquidity than they had ever, not ever, but had had had, had in recent memory. Um, you know, their expectations of, of what their assets were worth were very different because of that liquidity um, than the buyer's expectations when the buyers look at cash flow from operations. And I think what you're seeing now for investors is that as those entities burn through that COVID-related funding, 
and they realize that their cash flow from operations is not recovering, there's some real opportunities here uh, for private for investors to pick up assets uh, at prices that should be favorable. 